This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. A warning, this episode contains discussion of sex. French leader Napoleon Bonaparte has been a legendary figure for more than 200 years. He was a military leader and an emperor and ruthlessly ambitious at both. Now his story is told in a lavish war epic directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about Napoleon on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining us today is writer and critic Walter Chow. Welcome back, Walter. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. So Napoleon begins in 1793 as French citizens gather to witness the beheading of Queen Marie Antoinette. The French Revolution is well underway and Napoleon Bonaparte is watching in the crowd. Napoleon is played by Joaquin Phoenix. From there, we see Napoleon's rise to power as he presides over many epic military battles, stages a coup to seize control over the French government, becomes France's emperor, presides over many more epic military battles, gets exiled, returns, and gets exiled again. Along the way, he courts and marries the love of his life, Josephine, with whom he corresponds in letters read throughout the film. Josephine is played by Vanessa Kirby. Their relationship is troubled throughout as they struggle to conceive an heir, and they carry on a number of affairs, some of which become public. But the big story of Napoleon is one of hubris, in war and in empire building, and of one man's pursuit of conquest at all costs. Napoleon was directed by Ridley Scott, who also worked with Joaquin Phoenix on Gladiator. The film is in theaters tomorrow. Walter, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of Napoleon? I was really mixed. This is a movie I really, really wanted to like. Uh, I really enjoyed The Last Duel that Ridley Scott did a couple of years ago, and I thought maybe this was going to be kind of along the same sexual politics journey of it, the weird uh, perspectives that men and women share and don't share. I thought that was really clever in The Last Duel. And I wondered if it wouldn't be Napoleon and Josephine, the weird marriage story, uh, crowded around with some of Ridley Scott's trademark giant epic battles that you mentioned. But yeah, I ended up being very mixed on it. I think it doesn't do enough of one and maybe too much of the other. So you wanted more... Of the Napoleon and Josephine? I wanted it to be weirder. Yes. (laughs) Even if there weren't any battles at all, which are so amazing to the point of mesmerizing. But what was really interesting to me, though, was just how weird those two guys are together, Josephine and Napoleon. There's something really twisted and, and beautifully perverse about that relationship. And I wanted more of that. That's something that I haven't seen. I've seen the big battles. What I maybe haven't seen is a real exploration of just how messed up Josephine and Napoleon were. Didn't think there was enough of it, even though the cast appeared to be game to go a little darker. Uh, They didn't quite get there for me. Make Napoleon weird. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should note that the version we saw and the version that you'll be able to see in theaters, that version is two hours and 38 minutes long, but there is a Ridley Scott director's cut that is four and a half hours long. Mm. And apparently that (laughs) is a little more centered on Josephine. A lot of what was taken out apparently is Josephine's backstory. I'm trying to imagine how they managed to film two more hours of salvageable (laughs) material, but uh, you might get your wish if you've got four and a half hours to spare. 
Well, I take it all back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) How about you, Aisha? Um, So about five minutes before the lights dimmed and this movie came on, I realized, oh, man, I have not thought about Napoleon since high school. So this is going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to, like, try and remember who various figures are. And granted, the movie does help you a little bit with captions underneath to tell you who is who. But I was just like, oh, man, I outside of talking about Napoleon complexes, I, why, why would I have thought about Napoleon since then? Um, so I went into this as someone who doesn't really care for period dramas and also is not really a war person. But I came out of it realizing, first of all, this movie is way more lighthearted than I anticipated, which is Mm -hmm. weird to say about an epic where some thousands of characters die in bloody battle. But Napoleon is, I mean, he may may not be weird enough for Walter, and I don't know if the movie as a whole was weird enough for me, but Napoleon is kind of weird. I mean, Joaquin (laughs) is playing him as this smug dude who's also kind of awkward and very unself-aware. He has some very petulant lines here and there. At one point, he tells uh, a commander, you think you're so great because you have boats. And it's like... (laughs) I deserve this pork chop. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like, it delves into that weirdness. But, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but like, I did have an issue with the actual Napoleon and Josephine relationship in a different way from Walter. And that like, this is the season of like trying to understand difficult famous men through their relationships to their wives. And mm-hmm. I have thoughts about that, which we can talk about later, but like it kind of bothered me in a way. And I wanted, uh, I don't know if the four and a half hour version would solve those problems, but it was a problem for me in this iteration of it. Yeah. I, I don't think it would solve it just because I don't think Ridley Scott is the person to solve that. Yeah. You know, I think when he's, at his best after his early first four masterpiece movies, the movies I like the best after that period are maybe Thelma and Louise and the the last duel. Mm -hmm. Right. And those are both co-written by women. I I don't want to make too much of that, except that it does offer Sir Ridley a little bit of balance, a little bit of nuance that he otherwise doesn't have. And I think Ridley Scott is a little bit or a lot heavy handed. And he's such a good heavy hand, right? He's so good when he's doing the military stuff. Whenever there's any kind of nuance, whenever he tries to deal with things that have a question, he doesn't like that, I think. And so yeah. there's a possibility for a really, really great movie by Yorgos Lanthimos. I definitely kept thinking about The Favorite and during those scenes yeah, between them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think that he's kind of striving for that, right? He wants his giant, period, accurate boats and huge, you know, the, the giant, big, huge. These little delicacies of human interaction become cartoonish. Mm. The way that, you know, Napoleon, Joaquin Phoenix is whimpering when he wants, you know, as foreplay <laughs> and she, she, she soothes them. Like there's something very weird about it. And I wanted more. I wanted to say, please tell me where you're, what you're getting at. Are you saying that it was because of his Napoleon complex? It was it because he needed to prove himself as a man that he killed 3 million people? Is that what you're saying? Because I want this message, but it's not quite there because the war is so beautiful. So it's, it's not really an anti-war film either. So what is it exactly? And who's it for? I think you just hit on exactly what my issue with this movie is, mm. which is I don't think it coheres into anything. I don't think it really has that much to say about Napoleon. To me, I found it an interesting companion piece to The Last Duel. I think it shares some 
conceptual DNA with The Last Duel. I think both films are very interested in looking at past eras and how bad some of the sex was. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) There are definitely some shadows and echoes of that film in this one. But ultimately, I didn't feel like the Napoleon and Josephine relationship coheres into anything particularly interesting. Even in two hours and 38 minutes, we get tons of their letters being read back and forth. But a lot of that feels like telling instead of showing. I don't necessarily feel like that came through on the screen. I agree with Walter that some of these battle sequences are absolutely spectacular. There is a battle set piece set on a frozen lake that has images in it that I will always remember. Yeah. And that is very high praise. This is a technically beautifully made film, but I'm not sure it adds up to that much. And Aisha mentioned the little cards that pop up, you know, this is the Earl of Thistlewick and this is the (laughs) whatever. And I'm like, I'm glad that you're telling me who this is, but there's a lot of, I want somebody at some point to lean into making a biopic that just shows title cards that are like Wikipedia headers. (laughs) <laughs> and so it'll just be like personal life. And then we just see Napoleon and, jo- and Josephine together because just like lean into being a filmed Wikipedia entry. Uh, that stuff didn't engage me at all. But mostly I just came away from it not having a real sense of what it was trying to say. Yeah. I mean, look, I think historians will probably disagree. But the question isn't whether this movie gets Napoleon right historically accurately or anything like that. Like for me, it's like whether this offers a compelling enough version of Napoleon to support its reason for existing. And so like, what is the narrative arc here? He starts off kind of like a man of few words. And then like, as he has these successive victories, he gets bolder and more puffed up. And when he meets Josephine, he also like seems to like be filled with a new sort of vigor. And going back to this relationship between them, what is that relationship trying to achieve? It clearly dives into how some people have said that some of Napoleon's military decisions were made directly because of her or like out of his relationship with her. Okay, sure, let's blame the woman or whatever. Again, when we have these like women, wives, mistresses, whatever, of these famous men who, you know, when you have that kind of character, it flattens them into purely romantic objects. Or in the case of Napoleon, this like romantic obsession first and foremost. You know, I went and looked at her Wikipedia page afterwards and I was like, oh, she liked to collect art. She did all these other things. And I'm like, I got none of that from this. It's just like, she shows up, she says a little thing about how her husband was was executed, she has a kid, and then that kid disappears. Uh, I don't know what happened to that What happened to her kids? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then the rest of the story becomes her trying to bear him a child and not being able to. And like for all that um, Vanessa Kirby is trying to do here, it just like never rises above that sort of very specific trope of the woman in the male centered war movie. Walter, like, what would make it weirder for you? <laughs> or, like, more interesting, that relationship? Oh, man. I think we we talked about, like, what the NPR censors would allow through. I don't think I could tell you. Oh, <laughs> well, just more kink, I guess. <laughs> you remember the way that she courts him? It's fascinatingly weird. Mm. They're just sitting, like, next to each other, and she just sort of pulls up her bloomers. 
and says, once you see it, you'll never, you'll never forget it. And boy, does that bear out. Yeah, and, <laughs> the and the next, very Dr. next scene, <laughs> exactly. and, and, and the very next scene, they're getting married, and then he's going off and killing, you know, he, he's conquering Egypt. And it's like, yeah. put it all together for me. Don't just kind of leave these tantalizing crumbs. I don't like to be lectured to, but I also don't like it when there's just like these beginnings of ideas that are never really brought to a mature fruition. If we had a hot 90 minutes oh of just the Napoleon <laughs> and Josephine, right? And at the very end of their very strange dysfunctional relationship, you get the same end title that tells you how many people Napoleon killed. So at the end of it, you're like, this weirdo, this guy, <laughs> there's also the sense that it's almost a comedy, yeah. right? Uh, the, so- there's, it's the best hat movie in decades. <laughs> that hat does a lot of work in that this hat film. Does work. It's another yeah. character. <laughs> it's it's the best supporting actor in this movie. You know, it gets in the way when he's trying to kiss people. Uh, he takes it off and tries to put it on others. It doesn't quite fit right. It kind of hits you over the head. That's a word. It's kind of his like rosebud, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know what's interesting to me is it feels like you saw the movie Elvis, and what you wanted was the movie Priscilla. you know how like priscilla doesn't have any elvis music in it and you basically want the movie josephine i do i confess it (laughs) apparently there have been a lot of books written about josephine so i mean it could happen or maybe it hasn't i just again this isn't my genre but (laughs) (laughs) well i guess i did want to ask about that to, to kind of wrap up this discussion i wanted to ask about there have been projects built around Napoleon, they have largely been boondoggles. Uh, Stanley Kubrick famously tried to get one off the ground and couldn't. What is it about Napoleon's story that is so hard to turn into a satisfying movie? Uh, I mean, I would say, again, as someone who hasn't thought about Napoleon in a very <laughs> long time, I think it's the same, a similar problem that's plagued most biopics or or most biographical historical movies, anything that's adapting, especially if you're going this far back into history, is that like we have to base this on historical accounts that may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. And you have to try and piece within all of these accounts of who Napoleon was, what he did, and and all these historians and 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 historical figures trying to assign meaning to what he did when perhaps there wasn't maybe it was just chaos like who knows what was going up in that brain really you have to try and also create an actual narrative arc out of this and you have to decide do you like this guy or do you not like this guy or how do you find a middle ground? And I think it's really easy to fall on either the hero versus villain version. And it's way harder to get the middle ground, like the gray areas. And I think that that is part of a, an issue that I have with most biopics. I don't think it's just unique to Napoleon. I think maybe also just the idea that like, this is a war movie, a war epic. And when you see how much money was put into this <laughs> on the screen, you can imagine that like a lot of the attempts have failed in part because like, that stuff's expensive. <laughs> Walter's know? idea would have saved Apple TV Plus about $195 million. <laughs> Just an intimate bedroom drama would have cost like, you know, maybe a couple million. They could have done that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would only echo everything that Aisha said. I think, you know, I would add the idea that Napoleon's kind of icky. Mm-hmm. Is that true or is that just a result of British propaganda? I mean, the whole idea of the Napoleon complex was kind of invented by a British caricaturist that just started drawing Napoleon as very short, just to mock him because they were on opposite sides of this battle. 
battle. So what really is true, we don't really actually know. And I think there's a certain lack of clarity of purpose. Because at the end of it, the the people that are Neil deGrasse Tysoning this movie (laughs) are going to Neil deGrasse Tyson it. Of course. The people who are going to it for a romance aren't going to find a romance in a traditional sense, not the kind of romance you would probably want to have anyway. It's none of my business. (laughs) I don't know your life. (laughs) I don't know your life. I'm not judging anybody. But I'm just saying that there's, there's not really a point of view. There's not really a... Uh, I don't know who this is for because uh, it's going to make everybody a little bit upset. I agree completely. All right. Well, we want to know what you think about Napoleon. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When life is flying by, it's important to take a moment to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives, like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bell's Brewery. Bell's have been brewing their flagship two-hearted IPA with a devotion to craft for nearly 30 years. Their standards for the ingredients that go into the brew are ridiculously high. In fact, when it comes to selecting hops, there's no middle ground. It's either graded in A+, or, well, they're happy to let the other breweries use it. Bell's Two-Hearted IPA. Bell's Brewery, Comstock, Michigan. Please drink responsibly. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from the run-through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Stephen Thompson. Before we get back to the show, a quick word. We know it's important to you to have us here every week, helping you figure out what to watch, read, or listen to. Your financial support makes us happy every week. It's what makes it possible for NPR to cover news and pop culture and give you shows like this one. Even though what you listen to from NPR is free, it's not free to produce, which is why we want to say a big thank you to our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus supporters and anyone listening who currently donates to public media media. If that's not you, Giving Tuesday is almost here, and an international day of giving is the perfect reason to sign up for Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus. You'll be supporting the show, and you'll hear each episode without messages from sponsors. Or you can make a tax-deductible donation to your local NPR station. You have choices. What really matters is that you are a part of the community of listeners who keep NPR going. We cannot do it without you. You can give today at donate.nl npr.org slash happy or explore npr plus at plus.npr.org thank you now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week what is making us happy this week aisha harris 
What's making you happy this week, buddy? Well, this is a song that is uh, almost a decade old, and I'm just now discovering it. But it makes me really happy. And it's by Electronic Duo Capital Cities, and the song is called Farrah Fawcett Hair. It's actually kind of timely because this song features Andre 3000. And mm. as we all know, Andre 3000 is <laughs> just, dropped. just dropped a new <laughs> album of, of instrumental music. But here he is singing on it. But it's a weird <laughs> song that's just a list of random good stuff like with a killer saxophone break and also on birth 2000 as i said so let's play a little bit of this song I love that. Or how infants with baby breath yawn in your face. Good stuff. Uh, They use a different word, but I can't use it on NPR, obviously. It's kind of like if We Didn't Start the Fire was thematically coherent and actually a good song. (laughs) This is a good song. You can dance to it. You can like rock out to the saxophone break. It's just great. So if you haven't heard it or if you have, put it on again. It'll make your day. It'll make you just smile because it's just a list of good stuff to a really fun beat. So that's a Capital City's Farrah Fawcett Hair featuring Andre 3000. Wonderful. Thank you, Aisha Harris. Walter Chow, what's making you happy this week? I mean, Aisha just made me happy by taking a <laughs> random shot at Billy Joel. <laughs> but, you know, what's really making me happy, and I think maybe I'm a little bit late to the boat on this, but I really love Blue Eye Samurai. On Netflix, I just started watching it. It's an anime series done by a married couple named Michael Green and Amber Nozumi. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It takes on these ideas about mixed race, about immigration. It's set in the Edo period in Japan, where they close their borders to outsiders, and all the voice actors are are racially correct. You know, all the little things that I've grown more and more passionate about in the last several years. This series honors it. It's on Netflix now. Uh, Ken Brana plays maybe the most evil character I have encountered uh, in, in any medium for, for several years. He's so good as a voice actor. But uh, Blue Eye Samurai, and I didn't expect to love it as much as I do. It's, it's, uh, it's playing now. Wonderful. Thank you, Walter Chow. What is making me happy this week? First of all, delighted to see various strikes ending so that production can pick up and we can get all sorts of new and nice things again. And one of the side effects of the strikes that I think was actually beneficial is what is making me happy this week. And that is that last week, CBS started airing as a companion to rerun episodes of the delightful sitcom Ghosts. They started airing reruns of the delightful UK sitcom Ghosts, uh, on which the US version is based. And if you don't know Ghosts, it's a very, very charming show in which a couple comes into possession of a big, spooky, haunted mansion. Uh, She has a near-death experience, and suddenly she can commune with the ghosts who occupy and haunt the property. Part of what is so delightful about these two shows is that while they share a basically identical premise, they are completely different characters. Each one One has its own kind of well-rounded set of foibles and powers and goofiness. And I love the idea of networks and streaming services dipping into the waters of TV produced in other countries. And seeing CBS, uh, though 
forced though their hand was, I'm delighted to see that they are shining a light on the UK version of Ghosts, which is not necessarily easy to find if you don't have access to various online means, and introducing that delightful show to US audiences. I'm delighted to see it. Ghosts UK just started dropping in the US last week, and it's rolling out side by side with reruns of the US version, which is also terrific. And they are what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Walter Chow, Aisha Harris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Such a pleasure. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson and we will see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. Listen to the Shuffle podcast from Ideastream Public Media. Shuffle is your backstage pass to Northeast Ohio's independent music scene. The region birds Devo and the Black Keys, and the area is still home to artists making music in an eclectic mix of genres. I'm your host, Amanda Rabinowitz. Discover independent music. Be inspired by the personal stories. Listen to the Shuffle podcast from the NPR Network and Ideastream Public Media.